Let me pray for us, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning that we can gather together, that we can glorify your name. Lord, please speak to us this morning through, through the music, through the announcements, through the vision for our future here, through the word. Lord, help us be out of the way and let your work be done here. We lift up your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. We've come to the... Sorry, good morning. <laughs> hey, Ruth. I love that they sit up front. That puts a smile on my face. Uh, well, we come to the back end of Timothy today. Last chapter, working out of Timothy 4. If you recall from a couple weeks ago, we started in the book of Timothy as kind of a good place of engagement as we look to go through a pastoral transition and welcome in a new pastor. We're looking at the pastoral epistles and, and learning some of what the early church went through as they did pastoral transitions. As I think about this, I'm reminded of a story that happened in our culture. It actually happened to Albert Einstein on a train from Princeton. Maybe you've heard this story. Um, Einstein was on the train and there was a conductor walking down the aisle punching the tickets of the passengers. When he came to Einstein, um, Einstein was famous at this point. So the conductor um, came to Einstein. Einstein started going through the, the pockets in his coat looking for his ticket. Einstein was notoriously forgetful, right? I mean, that was part of the thing about being a genius, right? I guess you're also gifted with forgetfulness. So he's going through his pockets. He can't find what he's looking for. And, and the conductor finally, to, to stop Einstein from being embarrassed, says, you know what, Dr. Einstein, we all know who you are. Like, it's okay. I'm, I'm sure you've bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. And Einstein nodded appreciatively, and the conductor continued down the aisle. Well, by the time he gets to the next, ca- next car and comes back, he notices Einstein still rifling through his pockets. And Einstein then gets off of his seat and starts looking under his chair, looking for his ticket. The conductor is totally embarrassed. He has this, you know, at this point, iconic scientist in his train car who's now looking for his ticket embarrassingly on the, his hands and knees. The conductor like borderline runs over and says, Dr. Einstein, it's okay, it's okay. We know who you are. I'm sure you've bought a ticket. It's okay. And Einstein famously looks back at him and goes, young man, I too know who I am. I've just forgotten where I'm going. (laughs) He needed his ticket to remind him where to get off of the train. Oh... Sometimes there's a struggle, you know, there's always the struggle under the struggle, right? You know, I think it's significant for us to look at, there's a big part of the Christian life and understanding who we are and how that actually dictates where we're going. But it's also important to remember, like, hey, where are we going with this? And as our culture has gotten to the point of even needing to define who we are, right, in, in whole new ways that, that our nation has never had to look at before in terms of the means by which we identify ourselves, um, there's a whole new sense of having to re-examine where we're going as well. As a pastor, I read across a bunch of different areas of, of the world and of leadership, and there's a theme that I'm noticing in everywhere from the business world to the church world to nonprofit to government. And that theme is that, um, like my generation on down, isn't taking the baton of leadership like the previous generations did. There seems to be a, a great void that the next generation of leaders aren't stepping up to. And when I read through 2 Timothy, it kind of makes me wonder if, if some of those things were true for the early church. I mean, we see Paul, who's kind of the CEO, visionary leader, handing off leadership to this young man who at point is criticized for being young. He has to be encouraged not to be so shy. Actually, he's physically got an infirmity where Paul actually tells him to take wine as medicine. Um, so, so even though Timothy and the early church would have understood very well who they were in Christ, there was this sense of like, hey, 
can Timothy take us where we're going? Are we going to be able to fulfill our purpose? And it's with that in mind that Paul starts out uh, verse 1 in chapter 4, I charge you, therefore, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. My first point today is there's a charge on our ministry. There's a charge on how we're to conduct our ministry. And it started out by describing who the charge is from, right? Paul says, I charge you in front of the one who judges the living and the dead. I stand before God and call these charges into your life. See, a day is coming when the God who judges the living and the dead is going to recreate the cosmos into an Edenic community where everything fulfills God's purpose. Everything will worship Him and everything will serve Him. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And it's in front of that God that Paul is calling Timothy to these five things. These five things. These five things are preach the word, be ready in and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And then he talks about how to do that with patience and with teaching. But we'll go through those five things one by one. Preach the word. Preach the word. You know, honestly, um, what I like as I've, as I've seen other pastors go through this text, I mean, quite frankly, there's pastors who will preach this text and go, preach the word, and the whole Sunday morning sermon will be on preach the word, because I, I think it carries that much weight with what we do as an evangelical community. Like, I, th- I think that's okay to say, like, hey, preaching has primacy in the church as a gift. Now, maybe one of the mistakes we make in the West, because we're like the, the good news about Western churches is we, we want to know good theology. Like we're, we're steeped in at least access to good theology, right? We don't always have it, but there's plenty of materials in the English language in ways that in other countries are just not there. So like preach the word is important to us as a culture. John Wesley said this about preaching. He said, Give me a hundred preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and such alone will shake the gates of hell. Martin Luther, completely other side of modern Protestant evangelicalism, said this, To preach Christ is to feed the soul, to justify it, to set it free, to save it if it believes in the preaching. So we have, here we have two people on completely different ends of the theological spectrum talking about the primacy of good preaching in the church and how it affects us. It's interesting, another modern theologian philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, said this about preaching. He said, people have an idea that the preacher is, is like an actor on the stage, and they're the critics blaming or praising him. But what they don't know is that the people are all the actors on the stage, and the preacher is merely the prompter in the wings, reminding them of their lost lines. It kind of flips it on those who, who want to sit in a chair and turn preaching into a performance for them. He says, no, no, that, that preacher is to help you in your life's performance. He's there to help you remember your lost lines, the things that we all need to be reminded of, we all need to be preached to. Second thing that Paul covers in that list of five, he says, be ready. Scripture talks about being ready in season and out of season. There's even a parable about like that. It says in Matthew 25, the kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. 
For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took their flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept, but at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go and buy some for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him, and the door was shut. After that, the other virgins came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. And that proverb is less about oil, and it's more about spiritual readiness, being ready for the day of the coming of the Lord. And for some of us, who knows, God may tarry and return, and, and we may enter into heaven standing up. And, and for some of us, for you know, all the Christians that have gone to heaven before us, like they went into heaven basically in a, in a box, right, after a funeral ceremony. Be ready for that day. It could come today in a car accident. It could come in 20 years from now, resting in a hospital bed. For some of us in a different generation, it could come 30, 40 years from now, but the day is going to come when God asks you for an account and he's beseeching you through this scripture to be ready. One of the interesting things about Christianity is you can't really accomplish more in Christianity than you are, right? Like, like maybe in business or in school, there's ways to be clever and not a good student and kind of get ahead or cheat the system. The interesting thing about God's system is you can't cheat it. You could be a great evangelist, but if your heart is not for God... I mean, in Matthew 7, 21, he, say, he says in the end days, there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, but will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we need to live in a state that's ready for seeing Jesus and ready to be messengers for him. Now, the next couple charges out of the five that we're going to look at today seem less intuitive, right? Preach the word. Okay, we're, we're used to that. Be ready. Be on a journey with Jesus, not taking a vacation for years at a time. Like, be ready. Be working towards that. Like, those are kind of intuitive things, I feel like, to our Christian culture. The next few are going to feel a little different, right? Because we may not be used to pastors in this role. The next one is reprove. Reprove. I went and looked that up so I'd have a good definition for you because I kind of know what reprove is, but I wanted to be clear, like reprove versus rebuke. Like what do these things, what do these things mean? Reprove, I think this was from Strong's Thesaurus, is to properly and solidly convince with compelling evidence to expose wrong. So reprove to me sounds more like debating somebody into a correct status, Right? Reprove. The next one is rebuke. Rebuke is stronger. It's to censure or admonish, to charge, rebuke, or by implication, forbid. Right? Now, rebuke is a more strongly worded rejection. And I would say, based on Timothy's character, and like, honestly, even today, like my colleagues, like pastors my age, like maybe the, the thing that we like least like to do and, and maybe need to be told to do the most is like when you have to, to rebuke. I don't know any healthy pastor who, like emotionally healthy pastor who went to seminary thinking, man, I really won't, can't wait to reprove and rebuke some people, right? <laughs> like who, who likes that? <laughs> And especially if you're a pastor, like most of us want to be liked. Like hopefully we don't need to be liked all the time. But, but like you're in a church. 
if you don't like the people and or they don't like you, like that's a bad day. I don't care how much they're paying you. <laughs> it's a bad day. Nobody likes that. My, I imagine Timothy, young, timid, little sickly himself, maybe vulnerable for those who want to rebuke him back, who are challenging him for not being the leader that Paul was, might have been told, like, hey, Timothy, here's the freedom to rebuke. Not only that, how did Paul word it? Before God who judges the living and the dead, rebuke in season. Rebuke. Now, I don't I would say this. You could get on the other side of the spectrum too, right? Like, like you, could have, you could have the pastor who, who rebukes at the rate that Yosemite Sam fires off rounds, right? Like, I could say that that's not what I believe the Scripture is saying, and I believe every time I've, I've seen that, it's been out of line. So I, I don't think that's what we're saying. But there is a biblical charge before God for leadership to help community be healthy. And oftentimes, if there's unhealthy stuff going on in the community, like rather than let all the leadership take shrapnel, it's the pastor who has to come in and clarify expectations of leadership in the community or what healthy interaction and what teamwork is. And that's how like what I see is the healthiest spin on what rebuke looks like. Surely there's like heretical rebuke, which is going to be a little bit stronger. But more often in the church, it's a matter of trying to bring community into alignment and move us forward towards a better goal in a way that where we're all healthy together and we're all working on the same team. You know, it's funny when I, when I look back at stories in the Old Testament, I do this. And my guess is we probably all do this. We we look at Old Testament stories where, like, Israel's going sideways. And and one example would be, like, Moses leading Israel in the desert, right? Moses, the the righteous, clear-headed one, and the rest of the nation, stiff-necked and stubborn. I don't know about you, but when I read that story, I'm always Moses, Right? I'm never the stiff-necked, stubborn one. Like, that's never me, okay? I totally empathize with Moses. But the reality is that's not true. That's not true for any of us, right? Unless your name is Moses and you're, you're leading the people out in the desert. Like, there's times where we get stuff wrong or we're stiff-necked or we're stubborn or whatever. And God's calling us into a growth process through that. I heard a great quote this week. It was from Kerry uh, Bryant. He said, you know, as, as we've been going through changing stuff, and um, he goes, you know, 15 years ago, I, I would have been your problem child, like arguing with you about changing stuff. And my reply was, 15 years ago, Kerry, that's being generous. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I, I would have said that to Gary Lorenz. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what Gary calls me? Do you guys know this? Gary calls me the son he wishes he never had. <laughs> I said, I, I said, Gary, you better stay healthy. I'll tell on you at your funeral, all right? <laughs> oh, the last charge that we have from Scripture is to exhort. And that means, like, encouragement or... Um, strong words to help lift us up and push us on. It's a little different than we look at, like, encouragement today. Um, It's not like this, like, Hollywoodized sense of encouragement, like, oh my gosh, so great, amazing, the sun doesn't set without shining on you first. Like, it's not that kind of encouragement. In fact, like, here would be an example of biblical encouragement. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous, Do not fear. Do not be in dread. That's kind of the way that the Bible language talks about exhortation and encouragement. Now, part of the reason I believe that it talks about it that way is because it never lets us forget, in a healthy way, like, hey, God loves us because we're sinners, all right? 
and we wouldn't get to heaven otherwise. Like, it's God's work. So, like, the biblical way of exhortation and encouragement isn't overly flowery in a fake kind of sense of the word, but it gives us strong words that should encourage us, give us strength, and carry us through. So those are five things that your pastor is going to be charged to do before God as part of the community here. Those five things. Verse 3, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. My next point is we have expectations for God that aren't always healthy. We have expectations for God that aren't always healthy. So Paul's walked through this letter, given Timothy a list of things on what to do, on how to do it, to tell him these charges before God. And as soon as he's done with those, he goes, you know what? But there's people who aren't going to listen to you. Right? This is a young minister just out of seminary, got a little experience. Maybe he's, you know, jumping into his first pastorate. And Paul has to say, like, hey, don't let your expectations be that even if you do all the right things, things are going to work out perfectly, because they're not. Because you're dealing with people, and they're imperfect. Because you, Timothy, are imperfect. Because we live under a curse in a fallen world. It's not perfect. There's a few people that I know of who've gotten out of seminary, gotten into a pastorate, um, and things have just turned out amazing, it seems like. Their ministry is just divinely touched by God. I mean, names I can think of, and I don't um, know most of these people personally. Uh, Francis Chan, Craig Groeschel, Rick Warren, people who got out of seminary and started like mega churches at fairly young ages that now literally their influence is national and even multinational. But by and large, that's the exception more often than the rule. And to be quite frank with you, a lot of their success has much, you know, has a, has a big portion to do with the culture as well. Because let's be real, if you're planting a church in China or Iran, um, you probably wouldn't have big buildings and multi-million dollar budgets, right? Like, you'd be a small church meeting underground, and you'd have to measure your success in a different way. So speaking about culture, my, I'm watching our culture, it seems like, before my eyes, and especially over the last 10 years, like, really change in terms of how we embrace Christianity. You know, our, our country has largely had what I'll just call, like, a relatively Judeo-Christian set of values, right? We believe people have an inherent value. There's a set of rights for citizens of our country. Um, there, there was kind of common understandings of what was right and wrong, at least as a, as a big overview of our culture. Um, and now our, our expectation of, of what's right and wrong, you know, to the Einstein analogy, like we don't even know who we are right now, like so where are we going kind of thing. Um, and Jesus... Jesus talked about a lot about how to engage culture, and even more so the epistles. As, as the Word of God spread, right, Jesus talked to largely a Jewish audience, a monocultural audience. Paul actually and Peter would go out to the unsaved world and have to deal with sharing the gospel in places where the culture was completely different than their own, right? Add another layer of challenges of communication and expectation to it. I mean, the, much of the Jewish community rejected the gospel, and that was within the same culture. Now you have people with a different culture, a different expectation of God, a different expectation of life and values, and here you've got to go share the gospel with them, and there's just a lot more things that could get in the way. Why is it important to 
to think about this today? Well, I'll tie back a scripture that I pulled out of chapter 1, and it talked about how how Paul said, for the sake of the gospel, right? Jesus, Jesus said this in Mark 29, truly I tell you there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or lands for my name and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this time houses or brothers or sisters or children or lands with persecutions in the age to come and in eternal life. So there Jesus is talking about him having a mission and that mission going forward on earth and also him talking about himself as having a a stake or a place in the world. Tim Keller said this about culture today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of tie these two seemingly, uh, what you're going to hear as I go through this scripture is these two seemingly incongruent points coming together to one point about culture. Um, I'm kind of setting the stage for that if you'll track with me. Tim Keller said this, there's no more critical issue facing us today than the relationship of the church and the gospel to contemporary culture. See, in the Old Testament, they had conquest and even genocide based on cultural differences, right? We see throughout the Old Testament and throughout history, cultures who had different values attacking one another. And although, thankfully, in the West, we have less genocide, that's not true for areas in Africa right now. And in the West, our our genocide isn't on actual flesh and blood. It's more like ideological genocide or attacks. It's been said that throughout, throughout history, in comparing the West and Africa, Christians have found ourselves at different ends of a political and cultural spectrum. On sometimes, in sometimes we've been persecuted, and in other times we've reigned in culture. Sometimes we've been isolated, and in sometimes we've been the dominant force in culture. In places, we're highly indistinguishable from culture, and in places, we're very different from the culture. Now, we should probably define what we mean by culture, right? Because oftentimes when we talk about culture, we mean something very highbrow, right? Like if you're drinking tea with your pinky out, like that's very cultured. But that's not necessarily what I mean. We'll talk about culture as being like the predominant way of thinking amongst a certain people group, or you can have multiple cultures in a nation, a multiplicity of dominant way, or at least common ways of thinking. So, as our culture changes, one thing we need to our expectation of what it looks like to engage with culture. To talk about this, there's, there's no way to do it without citing a guy named Richard Niebuhr, who wrote a classic book called Christ and Culture in 1951. It's an old book, but, but really set the stage for this discussion in the Western world. If you're in any you know, quasi-Anglo-Saxon nation and you're talking about Christ's engagement with culture, you might not fall in his categories, but people will at least reference what he's going to talk about. And he talked about five different models of what the church engagement with culture looks like. Okay? The first one he calls Christ against right? Christ against culture. I'll I'll read through them and then I'll explain them. The second one is Christ of culture. The third one is Christ above culture. The fourth one is Christ and culture and paradox. And the fifth one is Christ the transformer of culture. Now, just so you know, each, when we talk about Christ against culture, we don't literally mean Jesus. We sort of mean Christendom, against culture, and we're importing Christ's purposes and using his name. So just to make that clear. um, But let me explain what Christ against culture is, and we'll go through that list. Christ against culture occupies one extreme of the continuum. It says that all expressions of culture outside of the church are viewed with a high degree of suspicion, be withdrawn from and avoided. 
Traditionally, throughout church history, ascetic or fundamentalist communities have looked at culture that way, that any, anything that culture's doing, we want to do different and specifically kind of draw from the Bible what we think the way to do everything is. The second definition is a Christ of culture. Christ of culture is like the polar opposite of Christ against culture. Cultural expressions as a whole are accepted uncritically and celebrated as a good thing. In theory, there's little or no conflict between culture and Christian truth. In practice, the latter is compromised to accommodate the former. So this would be like, you know, throughout Christian history, like Gnostics or very, very liberal Protestants who say, hey, whatever culture's doing, Christians can do that too. We don't need to be too worried about it because we got Jesus in here. It wholly accepts Christian or the culture of the, the nation. The third segment is Christ above culture. And that's kind of a middle position between the two, right? Christ against culture, Christ of culture, which like totally intermixes them. The third one, Christ above culture, regards cultural expressions as basically good as far as they go, but all of them need, needing to be augmented and perfected by the Christian revelation and work of the church with Christ supreme over both. This view would be expounded on by Thomas Aquinas and some of the Roman Catholics. Like, so Christ over culture. The fourth one, Christ and culture in paradox. Christ and culture in paradox. Christ and culture in paradox is another medial option. It sees human culture as a good creation that's tainted by sin. As a result, there's a there's a tension in the Christian's relationship to culture simultaneously embracing and rejecting certain aspects of it. So this would be like kind of Martin Luther, Augustine, Kierkegaard. Like there's, there's kind of like a take it and leave it kind of relationship between Christ and culture. And then the last one is Christ as the transformer of culture. Christ, the transformer of culture, is another medial position. It recognizes human culture as initially good, but fallen and corrupted by sin. But since Christ is redeeming all of creation, the Christian can and should work to transform culture to the glory of God. This view is, you know, kind of, again, Augustine partly... And then, I mean, Augustine was before Niebuhr, so he didn't get to read them and pick which side he's on, so it kind of winds up in two. Um, John Calvin, some of the Reformed tradition, they would be Christ as transformer of culture. Now, it's interesting to note, Niebuhr, when he wrote this, was, was a liberal Protestant. Um, Seventy years ago, liberal means something than it, than it did today, and now he probably wouldn't seem as liberal as our liberals. Um, and, and he isn't trying to, just to give a, a defense to some of his criticisms, people say, oh, if you have that Christ of culture piece, it opens the door for Gnosticism in the church. And I don't think Niebuhr's point is to say, hey, this is okay or this is okay. I mean, he, he just prevents, presents five things. He's not trying to, to lead us all into one or another. So if you read criticism on this, it'll say, hey, you know, that second point opens the door to things that we would consider heresy, and it's true. I don't, I don't think he's trying to make a point to bring these heresies into our church. He's just recognizing and drawing up the fact that we have different expectations of what it means to be a Christian in our culture. And interestingly enough, now having, having 500 years of Protestantism to put on a lens of these theologians and how they wrote, a lot of them seem to be highly influenced in, in what they perceive the Bible says about relating to culture. They, they seem to be highly influenced by the culture they live in. 
right? They almost take their expectation of how they see God working in their culture and extrapolate that on the Bible, right? Because those verses are true in their culture. The reason we bring this up now is as our culture changes, our expectation of how to be good evangelists and good neighbors and good lovers of the community will need to get reexamined. In a 21st century, in a 20th century church, it would be true to say, you know, oftentimes you go back to the mid 20th century, people would move to a neighborhood, they'd open up their yellow pages. Okay, th- these were these books before like cell phones or you could, you could look up like what businesses were in your neighborhood. Just want to clarify. So you'd open your yellow pages, <laughs> you'd look up the church that's from your denomination, you find the closest one to your house, and you go there, right? I mean, that's like, that's how people did things 50 years ago. Today, that's not necessarily true, right? Oftentimes, people can move to a neighborhood. I mean, first thing's true. They don't even know what yellow pages are, right? Like, that's so archaic. (laughs) Second thing that's true is we're a lot less denominationally oriented, right? People go to churches that seem to fit their needs or because their friend goes there or because they have a relationship with somebody at the church in ways that draw people into church at a much higher rate than years ago where you know, if you were Catholic, you went to the Catholic church. If you're CMA, you go to the CMA church. If you're Lutheran, you go to the Lutheran church. People pick churches now for different reasons. And it's important for us as a church to know how to love people well and to kind of understand, like, what, what kind of things would bring people here so that we can love on them, disciple well, walk through life change, support them. Paul goes on to say, and after, after setting the stage of these cultural challenges and laying out some of the things that are going to happen in his own culture, and us kind of looking just briefly at some of the, the modern perspectives of interaction between church and culture, Paul goes on and says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. Now, that, that metaphor for a drink offering comes from the Old Testament. It's when, when they were offering a sacrifice, some people say they would they would get the fire going, they would have the altar you're going to do the sacrifice on burning, and when that thing was cooking really hot, they would take the, the goblet of wine and they would go pour it on there. Have you ever done this? You ever started a, a pot or a pan on the, on the stove, got it really hot and pour some water in there? See that water instantly start to boil and gone. That may be the kind of imagery, the imagery that Paul was referring to when he talks about a drink offering, right? My life, gone. Drink offering, out of what you're, you're making an offering out of, the drink offering is the quickest thing gone. Just poof. That's what Paul's saying his life was like. Kind of the metaphor for getting thrown in the inferno and burned up quickly. In fact, Jesus, when he's talking about uh, metaphorically communion, he says this in Matthew 26, verse 27 and 28. He says, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which was poured out. Right? Not drunk, poured out, drink offering. Poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So that image of drink offering has some powerful and sacrificial metaphors behind it. It's interesting as we look back at our habits and our culture as Alliance Bible Church and look at areas where we may need to make sacrifice. If a few things come out, here's some of our good habits over the years. We have strong fellowship here. I I was telling somebody this, I've looked at that 
the plaque in the hallway about the, the founding members of our church. And there's a bunch of them still here. Like, like that's, pretty, that's pretty amazing that folks have come here, felt loved. God touched their life. And they stayed. And they still give. And they still serve. And they still love. Another couple values that we had. The Bible. I, I will affirm Bud put a lot of Bible in his, in his sermons, didn't he? There are a lot of scripture references up in there. We value the Bible. We value prayer, right? I mean, some of, some of our prayer meetings here as we prayed through our summits and got together like midweek, we, had, we were rocking prayer meetings, middle of the week. <laughs> we have multiple prayer meetings throughout the week here. Like, those are good, strong values. A couple values that we're working on is, like, sometimes we can be a little inward-focused, right? And sometimes we can even even be a little pastor-focused, right? Instead of coming together as a body and a community to do things, and all churches do this to some degree, but they'd be like, oh, the pastor will do it. Those are a couple things we need to be careful of. We need to be careful of. I can tell you this, whenever there's periods of fear or confusion, people go back to their old habits, right? We, we regress when we don't know where we're going or, or we're scared or we're worried about something. My prayer for us, and, and Paul's calling out to Timothy, sending him on this new charge to go. He's given him these warnings. Hey, Don't regress. Here's your charges before God. No, I've sacrificed and given. You'll have to do that too. Go, therefore. Archie Brown of the Metropolitan Tabernacle said this, A man who does not feel called to do anything will will succeed in doing nothing in particular. The force of a man's measure is to be found greatly in the strength of his conviction that is being called of God and to do what he undertakes. We're all to find our calling and address it. This last section, some commentaries call personal instructions from from Paul. You know, modern translation, we would say in the light of all this, He says, do the best to come to me soon. For Demas, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So that, now this part isn't, isn't my, uh, my application piece. This would be just Paul's kind of closure. Uh, He's, Demas has deserted me in this present world and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Dalatia. And Titus to Dalmatia. You guys heard of Dalmatia? It's where they have the white dogs with the black polka dots? No, not really. Not really. Luke alone is with me. Get him and Mark and bring him to you, for he is very useful in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I have left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, but above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At first, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Why is Paul ending his letter? This will be the last letter that we have recorded of his. Why is he talking about his failures? Why, why is the greatest evangelist of the first century church, and maybe ever, talking about his failures and his loneliness? Part of the answer to that is because this journey is a journey of sacrifice. I mean, we have the blessing of living in a culture where there's a lot 
more Christians. Like, let's be honest, I have a lot more Christian friends around me than Paul would have. Not because necessarily I'm a nicer guy, but I, I live in a country where there's a lot more Christians. I'm not alone in a jail cell. And I have no qualms about saying Paul would have accomplished much more than I will in my life, right? But that being said, at the end of his life, he still has struggle and pain, despite what he's accomplished. See, one of the things I do in my mind sometimes, if I'm not careful, is I think, if I'm serving the Lord well, and I'm sacrificing, and I'm giving, Lord's going to make my life rosy, right? He's going to take away my problems. He's going to make things not hurt. He's going to make it so I never, you know, stub my toes or, or kick my shin or, or have deep life struggles. I do that to myself, right? I, in my prayer sometimes with God, hey, God, if I serve you well, will you make this not hurt? Oh, Lord. And God doesn't always do that. Certainly sometimes he does. That's why he calls for us to pray for, calls us to pray to him. He does miracles. He heals people. But yet we, got all, we all got one thing in common, is everybody's going to die. We're all going to have pain and struggle along the way. Paul ends this letter in a way to share with Timothy that, hey, even though he has been this superstar evangelist for the Christian faith, it's not been without trial or struggle. It's not been without loneliness. In Paul's life, loved ones misunderstood him. Opposition beat on him. And according to his own words here, loneliness surrounded him at times. It's times like that where I'm tempted to invest my time and my effort and my treasure in things that will feel more fulfilling, right? Areas where I feel alone or hurting, areas where I'll feel really personally fulfilled and entertained. We'll have lots of friends around. I won't have to deal with isolation or challenge or struggle. I feel the pull of my own sense of wanting pleasure, sometimes opposing my sense of calling in ministry. Paul's laying his life out as an example to say, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. You're, you're going to have to parry some of those desires for pleasure and entertainment and comfort to be a fulfilled minister in the Lord. He goes on to his final greetings. Greet Prissa and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth, and I at Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Prudence, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. And he concludes, the Lord be with your spirit. The Lord be with your spirit. Young man leading a church, may your spirit be full and grace be to you. So on account of all this, what can we do in our own lives to engage this message? Number one, understand who we are and where we're going, right? Einstein's challenge was this. He, he, he understood where he was but he didn't know where he was going. I would say as Christians, sometimes that's our struggle, especially for those who've been in the faith for a while. We've got some good theology. We've walked this walk for a little bit. We understand sonship and sitting before God. Good place. The next step with that is get committed to where we're going. One pastor said it this way, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know where you've, why you've been placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. The second thing you can do in knowing who you are and knowing where you're going 
and start to engage culture. One of the things that our, our digital revolution has done is it's made culture shift very quickly, often erratically and powerfully. But God promises us that His Word will not return void, that He's got a purpose in our sharing, that He's called us to be on mission with Him as part of the Great Commission, to go to the ends of the earth to, com- to share His Word. Yet I got, I got to be honest, a lot of times we struggle even with just getting the word out to our neighbor. Be aware of how we're engaging culture and how we can do that more. The third thing we can do is learn that God's going to pare things away and be part of that process. Like in Paul's life, Paul had some good things pared away from his life good friends that he was separated from on behalf of the mission, falsely put in prison. His comforts, I mean, like his diet? Can you imagine eating eating a prison diet 2,000 years ago? Like, let's be real. Throw that paleo stuff out the window. That wasn't happening. Allow Allow yourself to be pruned so that you can be fruitful. There will be things in our life that are good that God may take away for what is best. And part of the season of going to where you're going will be holding those good things out to God with an open hand and saying, God, these are good and I want them. Lord, but you decide. You decide what I need and you guide us as an individual and as a community. On that note, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, we love you. We long to be on mission with you, Lord. We know that that's going to be the safest place in the world no matter where it takes us, and it will also be the most fruitful place for us to be. Lord, we ask you to comfort our spirit as we are reminded once again, Lord, that there will be challenges on behalf of doing work for you. Lord, help us to vigorously engage those challenges. Lord, buffet us for moving backwards. Teach us what it looks like to engage culture moving forward and be with us always. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen.